This is Live Well Talk on Medicine, Color, Culture, and Equity, Part 2. I'm Dr. Dustin Arnold, Chief Medical Officer at Unity Point Health St. Luke's Hospital. Today's podcast is the second installment in a, a mini-series highlighting our team members of diverse backgrounds at Unity Point Health. Each month, one of our team members will join me to share their story and talk about challenges they've faced, role models and mentors, and talk about the historical aspect of medicine and color. Our guest today is Tyrone Galbraith, cardiothoracic surgeon with Physicians Clinic of Iowa and St. Luke's Heart and Vascular Institute. Welcome. Thank you, Dr. Arnold. We started this series and uh, Marcus Cooper participated with it. It, it was actually, he really, it was the, the driving force having this done and uh, easily persuaded me to support him in this and, and was nice enough to do the first one. We covered a lot of things in that, but let's start out with, can you share your story about kind of where you came from and how you got to be a cardiothoracic surgeon? Sure. I would say that um, some of the history that maybe maybe a lot of people don't know about me is that um, I was born in California, and uh, a fair amount of my childhood and youth was living under the poverty level or at the poverty level. And um, we stayed in California until I was around eight or nine. And uh, you know, we had a chain link fence with barbed wire and guard dogs and those sorts of things. And then ultimately, my dad wanted to move to Iowa to give us more opportunity and to have a safer place to live. And he thought that there would be more promise for us as kids and as a family in Iowa. And and also, I think importantly, that that early, early phase of life really colored how I was educated and exposures that I had and those sorts of things. For instance, um, it wasn't felt safe for me to go to school, to public school where I was at. And so I started public school halfway, almost to eighth grade. I knew how to read and to do basic arithmetic. And uh, over those next four years, really struggled to try to catch up with science and, and math and some of the things that a lot of the kids had already accomplished. And Ultimately, I went with a friend to a college visit and um, applied and, and got into Creighton. And that really kind of started me on the road towards the pre-professional side of, of life. And I would say that, you know, starting into school was a very hard experience for me. And a lot of people like to say, well, you know, we live in Iowa. There's no racism. And I often don't think of it so much as racism as, as inequality and kind of accepting the status quo of of where our different minorities are at right now. And um, what I found was some instances of frank racism where students would threaten to lynch my entire family and those sorts of things. But more commonly, I found that I was, myself and my brother were really the only black kids in the entire school. And, and there was a lot of people that weren't necessarily racist, but they weren't really sure how to interact and how to interpret that. So I would say that that was a really challenging point in my career or in my learning. Um, but I think that there's been a lot of role models and a lot of mentors that have, have stepped up and, and helped me out. And what I found with that was that if you work hard and you try to do good by people, that people are willing to invest in you and help you. And I think that goes beyond color and goes beyond, you know, who your parents were and those sorts of things. And I would say that I've worked very hard, but I've also been provided opportunities. Yeah, I, I, I tend to agree with you. I don't think people are racist as much as they're just kind of oblivious. They don't really understand the, the, the process. Right. I, was, I, I had a meeting at PCI one time, as, and I came out about 5.15, and there was a black lady there, and she looked really distraught. 
And I said, ma'am, are you okay? And she said, I, my doctor's appointment ran long and I missed the bus. I said, well, I'll give you a ride home. And so she, so she wrote home. She's probably in her early 60s. And so we started talking. She was from Chicago. And she just was listing off all these family members that got shot uh, in drive-bys or killed. You know, and I was just like, oh, my God. I mean, I have no point of reference to understand that. You know, how grateful she was to be in a city that had some degree of safety as opposed to that. And that it really put the zap on my head to say, you know, you you've kind of lived in a bubble, Dustin, and, and you need to understand that everybody has their own narrative uh, and, and be open to that. And so it, it was an eye opening experience. Uh, sure. and, you know, God works in mysterious ways. And I, maybe he placed that lady out there that day for me to kind of see the world differently. Um, sure. You said well, he and, to your, and to your point there briefly is that this concept of, of generational uh, poverty or generational racism or inequality, I think, is something that is underestimated. And sometimes people will superficially address it that, you know, well, I didn't have slaves and I didn't have people as slaves. So we got to move past that. Right. And I say that that's one way to look at it. But if you look at a deeper level. If you're a kid that's being raised where even police don't really want to patrol and that it's not safe and you, you, you know, your house is getting broken into, that certainly is going to affect and color what you think your opportunities even are. And if you see parents that, that um, really can't guide you into professional realms, you, you really feel like there's a very limited opportunity for you, even in America. And the, 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 the opportunity for resources and you know, I, I, I was explaining my daughters that it's not only it's not always about color, it's about resources and right. safety nets. And, you know, we, we there's an African-American family lives in our neighborhood. We're very good friends with them. And if one of their kids got in trouble, uh, I'd be making some calls to some buddies that are judges and uh, deputies. You know, I would be saying, no, this is a good kid. You got to we got to get him off. What do we need to do? If you're a single mom with three kids, you don't you don't have anyone you can call. Right. You know, and then it just spirals out of control from there because, you know, I, I, a couple of years ago, the chief of police wanted to legalize uh, or if you had so much marijuana, uh, he didn't want it to be illegal. And I was watching on C-SPAN and, and first thought is, well, it's illegal. What? But then he was explaining how, like, kids might have some marijuana on them. Shots are fired and the police find the drugs, right. you know. And so they just end up getting cited for that. And then you can imagine that just tethers them to this marigold round of incarceration to the point where they have no opportunity. Right. Uh, so, and I, and I think a lot of people wouldn't have no recollection of that, you know, uh, or no, no uh, reference point to understand that. Well, and much to your point, I think that, um, you know, it's Black History Month, and and a lot of the disparities are most glaring between the Black and white population, or minorities in general. Though I think that we have to recognize as a society. I think there's been a big push to say, well, just don't recognize Black or don't recognize white or whatever. And I don't think we necessarily. It's not up to you to necessarily celebrate my differences, but I think that we have to come together and find what our commonalities are. And what I found with with life in general right, is that if you work hard to connect with people on the most basic levels, you can connect with almost anybody. Yeah. And, you know, we all want to be accepted. We all want to be treated respectfully, those sorts of things. And I think the other thing that I would want to say is that 
the, a lot of the problems that we experience within the black population aren't necessarily tied to being black. A lot of it's tied to poverty. Yeah. And um, when you deal with a population that has limited resources, no matter whether you're white or an immigrant or black or Hispanic, the, the problems with infestation of drugs and crime and lack of education, lack of resources for health care are going to be common in all of those populations. And that one connecting factor is really poverty and real or perceived lack of opportunity. Yeah. You know, going back to you made that comment about, well, slavery's uh, 150 some years ago. But I think people should remember that uh, I believe it's called peonage, uh, where like the sheriff would arrest a black guy and his his get sentenced to a month of working for the Atlanta Brick Factory. Right. You know, that ended in 1945. Right. It, when uh, Truman sent down what some retired general to put an end to it because the the germany the nazis were dropping flyers to the 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 servicemen the african-american servicemen on the red ball express you know d-day if you've read about that it's a fascinating story it, to say hey look why are you fighting for these guys when they're doing this back at home and so i mean that's that's recent memory really you right. know and so i i think when people say well the civil war was a long time ago it was but there are these horrendous things that happen after that that were kind of just accepted. And so there, there, there is, you know, there's obviously people that are walking around today that have firsthand experience with that. And right. so I think you have to be sensitive to that. Well, and I think also recognizing that what's a resource for one person isn't necessarily for another. And I would say that if you talk to, to a fair number of the black population, we don't think of calling the police and them coming to help us, right? That we think of calling the police and you may get brutalized, you may be a suspect, you may be other things. And so that isn't, uh, unfortunately, there's been a disfranchisement between, say, the police force that everybody else would see as a resource. Or when it comes to healthcare with the, with the syphilis studies and things that were done, I think those all disenfranchised a lot of resources that, um, that were available. And, um, so I think there's a distrust among among minorities in general because a lot of the resources aren't truly resources for that population. Um, and I think that that's something to keep in mind is that the other thing is that I had the opportunity of living in Mississippi for a while and having lived kind of around the U.S. And I would say that one of the interesting perplexities to me is that, yes, there was desegregation, but the majority of people with aptitude set up their own school so they could stay privately segregated. And that's well into the 70s, 80s, and even oh, yeah, today. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and so I, I think that there is, there still is that. One of the unique things about Iowa, I think, is that, yes, there was the underground railroad, but when desegregation was happening in the South, there really wasn't much black population in Iowa, right? And so under, under having to undergo the integration of having minorities and being surrounded by minorities especially in rural Iowa, there's a fair number of, of, of people that have never really inter truly themselves interacted with a black person or a minority. And so they're going with, with hearsay. And so I think that it's something to champion and something we're making progress on. But I think that's important to keep in mind when we talk about what different people are facing. Yeah, I, you talk about just learned behavior, okay? Right. I, I can remember third grade, I won't mention the teacher's name, 
but we had a second grade teacher uh, who's just wonderful. She and I still see her here in the hospital. She's old, you know, when she's a patient, but she was black. And I remember the third grade teacher telling us that she just pretended that person wasn't black. Right. Well, what? Why would you even say that? You know, and so, you know, you're, you're a third grader. You're like, OK, I got to pretend people aren't black. What, what, what sort of teaching is that? You, right. you know, you can see how it builds on. Well, I got to pretend that they're not black, which was just a horrible thing to say. And, you know, and, and it was horrible enough. I, I remember it to this day. You know? Right. Um, and so I think sometimes you grow up in, with those sort of tools coming at you. Right. Uh, and that, that makes it even harder. Right. Everybody enjoys their own little tribe, you know. That's and that's not sure. that's not a bad thing, you know. Right. You want to hang out with people that that you uh, have something in common with. Um, but I, I often wonder if the melting pot of the United States is really going to have to reassess. It's easy to be a melting pot when you're ninety five percent of the population. Right. Right. So you're just like, oh yeah, we're a melting pot. You know, come on in. But I think when you start to get more and more different groups in significant numbers, it's, we're going to have to learn how to live with each other, so to speak. Right. Uh, and, and it's not going to be 95% white, you know, it's going to be uh, whatever the percentage is headed. Uh, but that, that's, that's, a, that's a big learning there for everyone. And, sure. and I think that's a challenge that we we're going to face. I, I'm really optimistic about it. I, I have daughters and I know how they see the world. And so I feel very comfortable that, will occur successfully, but but it is going to be a challenge. Well, and one more other thing is that I think that with technological advances that we live in a different era where there is, it's a really great time to be alive. And what I mean by that is with social media that based from memes to pictures to various things that people post, millions of people can see your messages. And if we leave positive messages that really unite people and those sorts of things, that you don't have to go to con you don't have to go to Washington D.C. anymore. You don't have to travel to big conventions. If we each do a little bit, um, I think that the world will change. And and social media is a great tool, but it can also be a weapon. Uh, absolutely, and I think we've seen that of recent. You know, sure. uh, I do want to cover one other thing, and that is you, you talked about the historical and the lack of trust, and I, I think that's true. And I think. And I also talked about then there's other patients that have this blinded trust, you know, well, you're the doctor and don't and really don't participate in their health care. But they're there. Right. And then you have other patients that aren't that they're mistrustful of the system. So they don't come to their follow up visit. They don't they don't get their yearly exam. Uh, and that just that that just spirals out of control at some point. And sure. so I think I think as physicians, uh, clinicians, we we. We have to try to build our trust account with every patient we see and not take, not ever take it for granted. Absolutely. Uh, you know, just because you have a white coat on doesn't necessarily mean that you know everything. And right. we sh and and uh, you got to be a good listener. And everybody has their own story and, and appreciate that. And I think if we do that, things will things will turn out OK. I agree. Tyrone, there's anything else you want to cover? Well, I think probably talking a little bit about the importance of, of mentors that come along. I would say that, you know, that people assume that to be a mentor and to have a role model that they need to have your skin color or be like you or those sorts of things. And I would say that the majority of people that have really been mentors for me are people that aren't my color and people that have just shown interest and taken ownership and, and dedication towards 
a goal of trying to help me be better. Three people stand out in my mind that in particular as mentors, but I would say that one was a gentleman by the name of Prent Lamont, and he was a very interesting guy, a little bit eccentric. He had actually done some work on the first atomic bomb and various things, but he was previously a teacher, a high school teacher. So he would sit down with me for couple hours every night during the week to to get me up to speed on science and math and those sorts of things and really left a lasting impact on me and the whole course of my life you know being able to learn learning how to learn and achieve things i'd say the second gentleman was um, a guy by the name of michael jackson and he he was uh my martial arts instructor for about nine years and really taught me a lot about discipline and focus and self-worth and those sorts of characteristics. And, and a lot of that was he taught me for free. You know, we didn't really have a lot of money and he taught me for free, but those people are both gone and dead now. And I think that it's really left a lasting effect for, for me to be able to give back to other people. And then lastly, I, I had the benefit of doing an apprenticeship with Jim Levette, Dr. Jim Levette this past year. And that was, um, that was very impactful in the sense that he was transitioning out as a cardiac surgeon and I was coming yeah. in, but he really taught me a lot about, you know, interacting with patients and staff and, you know, what role do you perform as the cardiac surgeon and, and those sorts of things that are, that you don't find in textbooks, but really set you up for success. And so I would say that I could not underestimate the um, benefit of people that have contributed to me along the way. It's nice to be around people that bring out the best in you. Right. And if you could surround yourself with those people, you'd be so much more happy than than people that uh, have negative thoughts. Sure. Well, Dr. Galbraith, thank you for joining me today and sharing your story. Again, this is Dr. Tyrone Galbraith, cardiothoracic surgeon with Physicians Clinic of Iowa and St. Luke's Heart and Vascular Institute. Be sure to join us again next month for the third installment of our mini-series. Thank you, Dr. Arnold. Thank you for listening to Live Well Talk On. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your family, friends, neighbors, strangers about our podcast. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, be well.